you're listening to the Whole Vineyard Podcast. To find out more about the Whole Vineyard Church, go to wholevineyard.co.uk. Hello everyone. Good morning. Just, we're 12 minutes off saying good afternoon. So, uh, which is weird, isn't it? So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Why don't you turn there? If you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just going to be looking at the first three verses. First three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting at verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Welcome to our, our new series, Church in the Wild, journeying through First uh, Corinthians uh, super, super excited, pumped for this, and uh, we're going to be part here, all 16 chapters for most of uh, the year. So look, if, if you don't like the Bible, and you don't like 1 Corinthians, then it's going to be a very long year uh, for you, and uh, today's a bit of a, an introduction, and for those watching online, for those who catch uh, this later on our YouTube channel or podcast, um, you may need to keep referring back to this message as an introduction uh, for this letter. So I want to encourage you just at the outset with a few things. Josh has alluded to a couple of those uh, things. Bring your Bible, okay? Uh, if you don't own one, we'll give you one, okay? We are a church and we do have Bibles. And so we'll give you one. And if you need to borrow one uh, during the service, then we have some uh, at the back. I think old school is best, um, Hands up if you believe the old school paper's the best. Yeah, four of you. Okay, you've got some words to do. When we ask the question this time next year, hopefully the answer will be different. Yeah, I just find that um, if you do it on your phone, whatever, it's too easy to swipe, too easy to get distracted on some of your favorite uh, websites. Um, I want to encourage you to get a journal, as Josh said, and um, we have some commentaries on sale in the cafe if you want to do some extra study on First Corinthians. You know, I love... God's Word. I love the Bible. Some people like to collect uh, stamps. Some people like to collect pens. Um, I, I heard about this guy called David Andriana in Italy. He's been collecting Coke cans all his life. He's a collector of Coke cans. In his collection so far, he has 10,000 Coke cans from 87 countries. Okay, so we all probably have our thing that we like and our hobbies, things that we collect. And um, I collect books, um, sermons, um, Bibles, ideas. I've been doing that for uh, over 30 years, for most of my life. Um, why? Because the Bible for me is um, God's Word. It is uh, my ultimate, ultimate authority. Um, it is my ultimate truth. Um, it, it's the most precious and powerful and the single most permeating influence uh, on all of my life, on my emotions, on my soul, on my mind, on how I live life. And God's Word is always doing these two things. If you spend time in it, it's always like a mirror. As you read it, it, it 
reveals who you are. It shows you yourself. And some of those um, places are difficult things to see. They're hard things to see. But they reveal yourself. It's also a pair of glasses so that you can see God. If you're just starting out on a faith journey, maybe you're here today and you wouldn't class yourself as a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, a Christian, then when you get to know God's word, you begin to see who God is and how awesome he is. And 1 Corinthians, this letter this year, will, it will thrill us, it will empower us, envision us, um, it will encourage us, but it will certainly challenge us uh, this year. And we're going to need to really put in the work in order to receive all that God has for us through uh, this letter. It, it, it's going to feel uncomfortable at times. Um, it's going to feel like maybe like a, a chiropractic adjustment is happening deep on the inside of you. And, um, and yet, as we allow God's word to speak to us, then it does change us. And, and my passion in life is that we, as a church, is that we, we preach this, we elevate it, we cherish it, we, we love God's word. And then, we invite the Spirit. My passion in life has always been the marriage of the Word and the Spirit. That we look at the text, close the Word, and then we invite the Spirit of God and He begins to act on His Word. He begins to take that which we've shared and direct it personally deep into our hearts and bringing freedom and healing and deliverance and salvation. R.T. Kendall, a wonderful author, theologian, pastor, he said this, we need both the sun and rain to give beauty and balance in nature. Likewise, we need both the word and the spirit in order to understand God and his ways. The word is like the sun. The spirit is like the rain. One without the other can result in a natural disaster. It has been said before, all word and no spirit, we dry up. All spirit and no word, we blow up. But with both the word and the spirit, we grow up. And that is the journey where we're committed as a church to, um, to be a healthy home. To uh, the depth of our discipleship will match the width of our outreach and influence in the city. And I believe there's a real prophetic call that's happening worldwide in the church today. It's a return to the simplicity. The simplicity of devotion to Christ to his word and a longing for the presence of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> I love all the, the setup. I love what the team have done here in terms of the aesthetics of our church building. But what it comes down to, we strip all of that away, is the simplicity. Sitting at the feet of Jesus and welcoming the presence of God, allowing him to speak to us. Jeremiah says of God's word, is it not like a fire? God's word is spoken, is like a fire. And that fire often confronts and then it conforms. And so we're going to allow the fire of God's word to come and breathe into our lives. Why is the elevation and the centrality of God's word so crucial for today? And I believe it's because both in the church and in the culture, God's word is being sidelined. It's been marginalized. It's been neglected. And we live in a time, don't we, of, uh, where the idea of just truth is contested and questioned. 
we're in uh, what many people call a post-truth age. And there's a number of reasons for this. There's the pull of pluralism, where there's no authority just talking like this, that this is God's word, God's truth to us, will offend the culture that we live in. There's the pull of relativism, where there's multiple truths. Whatever truth works for you is fine. Humanism, where we, we're God, so we don't need God's truth because we have, we have proclaimed our own truth over our own lives. There's liberalism where we fit our own truth, our feelings, our circumstances. We project that and fit that onto God's word rather than the other way around. Of course, materialism, particularly in the Western world, it, bring, it brings a choking of the richness of God's word. You have just simple busyness, busyness. Um, multiple distractions that are at the pace of life so quick and then of course finally textualism where that is the word but without God and this is why Jesus confronted the Pharisees so often you, you can know the Hebrew the Greek you can memorize this Bible and yet not meet God and our goal is, is that when we open the scriptures, is that we encounter the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That we meet with him and we're forever changed. Because one glimpse of him changes our hearts and lives forever. God's word is like a TARDIS. As you get into it, it's just so much depth and so much wonder. It's like years worth of birthday and Christmas presents unopened. And you just get to open it up as you gaze into his word. And when we open it, God speaks. 500 times there's that phrase, God speaks. We get to know the author of his word. We get to know the voice behind the word. And over the years, many people have tried to um, bury God's word, burn God's word, ban God's word. The enemy now tries to twist and undermine his word and so it's been neglected. And what we want to do, and we're committed to this, we always have been, we always will be, is to have God's word at the front and center of who we are and what we do. So we're going to be dropping anchor for the rest of the year, as I say, in 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is a letter. There's 1 and 2 Corinthians. There's a couple of letters, but there's actually more. There's probably about four letters. A couple of those have been lost. And um, it's written by Paul. Uh, with the help of this uh, guy, Sinosthenes, and um, he's an, a co-author, but he's a, a fellow uh, worker, companion uh, to Paul, and it's to a church in a place called Corinth in um, the ancient Roman Empire. Now, one of the challenges is when you read something like First Corinthians, and you'll find this, it's like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. Just one side, it's like stepping into someone's conversation. And so as we read it, we're hearing stuff, but on the other side of the conversation is, is stuff that we may not grasp, and so we need to work at it. And what do I mean by that? I'm talking about the context. I'm talking about the, the, the time that it was written, the, the, the place, the culture, uh, the who, the people, the age of the people, the new followers of Christ, or um, old followers of Christ, people on different trajectories of their discipleship walk with Jesus. And, and therefore, it's often nuanced and often complex. 
And so we've got to work hard at it over this year. Uh, and this uh, private letter that was written to the church was written about 50 years after Jesus uh, was, uh, was on earth. And it was to a church in a place called Corinth. A place called Corinth. This was a, a major economic city in terms of population. It was about double the size of the population of, of Hull. It was about 50 miles um, west of Athens in Greece. Really, really diverse in terms of its demographic. And a lot of the values um, in Corinth were influenced, of course, by the Roman Empire, which was one of power, is one of wealth, is one of status, uh, elitism, ego-driven, often individualistic and competitive. It was intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but it was morally corrupt. It was morally corrupt. Uh, there, were, there were loads of temples to uh, Greek and Roman gods. And Paul had come on mission here, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 18. He'd been on mission, planted the church, seen people come to faith. And like Paul often did, is he started something, and then he moved on to somewhere else. And you have the missionary journeys that he undertook. And what Paul did is that he heard as he'd moved on that there were problems now in the church that was started in Corinth. And so he writes this letter in response to the problems that he's heard in this church. And so this letter covers some pretty hefty major themes, okay? And let me give you some of them. Division, just a small thing, division. Then sex, just a small topic of sex. Food, the gathering, the resurrection. And then in that, you have loads of subplots. You have uh, immorality, marriage, singleness, Christian liberty, spiritual gifts, the gospel, money. These are all the problems, all the issues that Paul now addresses through um, this letter. And so basically in each section, you have, you have the problem that's going on. Then you have Paul's response that is always first and foremost with the gospel. That is the lens that he is looking through all the time. And then he shows the disparity between that which uh, they believe and they should believe and actually how they're living their lives. And actually, if you were to get some tracing paper and put this letter over uh, our Western church right now, you'll see a lot of overlap, a lot of similarities. This is what you claim to believe and yet this is how you live your life. And there's this great big chasm in between. What Paul's trying to do is like, that's the problem. This is the response. This is the truth of the gospel. Let's now marry the two things up in terms of how you think, what you believe, and indeed how you act ultimately. Discipleship, following Jesus, isn't about what you believe in your heart and your mind. Only. What he does is he has to go from here and here to actually being outworked in our lives. And doesn't, doesn't James talk about this? You know, faith without deeds is dead. It's futile. It's inoperative. Show me your deeds and therefore I will show you my, your faith. And that's really important um, as, as a Christian that we embrace that. We embrace good thinking, good theology, good beliefs, but also that it can't just stay there, that it has to affect 
our Monday mornings. It has to affect our day in, day out. It has to affect how we live as a witness, as an ambassador for Jesus Christ in our time. I think it's really uh, crucial, really dangerous, if you like, just to pick a verse and take it out of context. Um, I know, look, I, I love memory verses. Who loves memory verses? You know, one of my kids asked me this week, what's your favorite verse? And I'm like, oh no, John 3.16. That's all I could think of. Um, and so, you know, I remember the, the doctors, I used, when I was a kid, the doctor I went to was a Christian and they had one of those posters. Do you remember these like puppies with a nice Bible verse? Anyone? Okay. I was a good doctor and I felt good seeing the puppies. And, uh, and the memory verse. But actually, it's really dangerous to just take a verse, stick it on your fridge. You, you've got to understand the whole context. In fact, in this letter, um, it talks about the resurrection, not until chapter 15. And actually, it's chapter 15 about the resurrection that basically informs the previous 14 chapters. Because this is the ultimate gospel lens that we need to have uh, in our lives. We see every part of life through the gospel, through the lens of the resurrection. You know, many years ago I went into um, a cinema and I was running a little bit late and I went and I missed the adverts and then about 50 minutes later the f- credits rolled and the film had ended. And I'm like, I didn't think I was that late and I kind of felt shortchanged. I was like, what has gone on? And of course, as I was in the foyer, I realized that the same film was showing in two screens at two different times the 6 p.m. and the 7 p.m. And instead of going to the 7 p.m., of course, I'd gone to the 6 p.m., which means I I missed most of the film. And like that, like many movies, you know, the 9.30, there's only four who like, who likes Lord of the Rings? Okay, five, so we're doing better. Maybe the six tonight, well, six people like Lord of the Rings. But, you know, it's like like watching that, getting to the last half an hour of of the trilogy, and expecting to understand the characters and the plot and the story. And it's often with the Bible like that, is that we've got to be able to understand the entire story, the grand narrative, the context, before we just pick out a verse and go, do you know what, I don't like that verse. So I think I'll just tip X that out, quickly turn over, and go on something that I really like. You've got to really be careful not to do uh, things like that. And so um, the resurrection, you've got to wait till probably autumn time to hear about the resurrection <laughs> and how that affects all the stuff that Paul addresses to this church. And this letter um, isn't too dissimilar to the Western culture today. The, the ideal of the, of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. So whether it's the business person who would uh, get what they wanted through any means possible, lack all integrity, or, or the person of pleasure surrendering to every single possible lust, or to the athlete proud of their strength and their victories, what summed up someone in Corinth was essentially one who recognized that there was no one superior. There was no law but their own desires. Their feelings and their desires was king and was the truth of their lives. And they'd replaced the true God for being gods, which of course always leads to moral abasement. 
And so essentially, this is what Paul is doing. He's heard about the problems in Corinth, and he is writing to correct errors of Christian conduct. And in this letter, Paul addresses the issue of the church's identity over against its cultural surroundings. And what he does is he seeks to state out clear boundaries. So let me give you a headline. If you don't remember anything else today, this is the headline. The problem wasn't that the church was in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. The problem wasn't that the church was in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. So Paul begins to teach, he begins to write, creating clear boundaries that you must live in a manner congruent with the cross, that we must have common union as the body of Christ with each other against warring factions. But still in all of that, clear boundaries, and yet we must still have mission intent, reaching and loving people in our world for Jesus. And, and friends, this is why we've called the series Church in the Wild. There's a wildness of culture and we've got to be the, the church that Jesus has called us to be. The church is often caught between constant conflict and conflict avoidance. And we need to be the church which is ultimately a wedding gift from the Father to Jesus, a church without spot, wrinkle, and blemish, yet a church that deeply and lovingly and graciously reaches our neighbors, especially our enemies. What we're seeking to do is have a Christian discipleship walk which is high grace and high truth. And we live in that tension, the marriage of those two things. So this is a letter, as I say, it's written by this guy called Paul, and it says there, Paul the Apostle. And so here, Paul is having to voice his authority, which is being attacked, and he reasserts his apostleship. And you may think, wow, you know, particularly today with leadership culture, which is really unhealthy and toxic in our Western world today, particularly in the charismatic church, where we use titles and words and profile in order to exercise authority. That is not what Paul is doing here. The, the idea of being an apostle was this, is that, look, if I was choosing a career path, I would not have chosen this. I am only this because God has sovereignly and divinely chosen me for this role. And so apostleship for Paul was, was, was a real pathway of humility, I'm called to imitate Christ. I am called to follow Jesus, and it's the Jesus on the cross is my wisdom. To lay down my life, I will receive persecution and shipwrecks and flogging and pain for the sake of Christ. He knew he was being called out of the world to be sent to the world as a transparent vessel for the work of the crucified Christ. This is Paul, and we'll get to know Paul a lot more, obviously, this year. And it's to the church of God. I think that's really important to recognize this, is that there'll be some things that we read in this letter that we find uncomfortable, that is a challenge, that we may not instantly uh, like. But recognize that this is God's word, God's truth, through the apostle Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to the church of God. It is God's church. 
It's not some club. This is his people. It's his church. And it's his truth. And what does a church mean? It means this, a called out assembly. Church isn't just a place we come to on a Sunday for one of three services and have a nice coffee and tea and kids' church and everything else. It means called out assembly. So we, the church isn't uh, an individual pursuit. It is what we do in communities, what we do together as the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ who've formed an identity in Christ and we've been called out. In other words, we've been called out to be separate from the world's values and systems. We've been called out to operate in the things of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, rather than the kingdoms of this world. He goes on to say that basically you are the church of God, a sanctified people, a holy people. You are saints. What does it mean to be sanctified? It means you're a saint. You are a saint of God. You are holy. You are sanctified. You are set apart for, not for Caesar's name in that context, but for the name of Jesus, for his name and him alone. You are consecrated for him, for his purposes to be sanctified and to be holy. And there we have also in these few verses this salutation, grace and peace. And of course, uh, this was used by both Greeks and Jews. Greeks would often say grace to you, and the Jews would say peace to you. And I think it's really interesting that grace appears here first, before the peace. And, and this, again, is looking at everything through a gospel lens. Is a, it's a recognition that through grace, you have everything. Everything you ever need is through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And with grace comes peace. And peace was the prosperity of your being, prosperity of who you are as a whole person. So we come in through grace, not through our own works, our righteousness, but through the blood of Jesus. And then we welcome peace into our lives. So let me close. This letter essentially will help us in our time, in our day, 2024, in Hull, to embody courageous fidelity to, to Jesus, to his word, to orthodoxy in an age of compromise. It will help us do that. It will help us to take courage to hold to a biblical authority over a tsunami of compromise in many different ways. And the best thing to do, can I give you some homework? Read the letter. This week, the coming weeks, um, you may want to read a few verses, you may want to read a chapter at a time, but just maybe read the whole letter through so that you can see the whole picture. So that's a bit of an introduction for you. I'd love you to stand. And, and what I want to do is I want to um, pray, for us all to pray, um, the next few verses. Because actually, these next few verses is like a prayer which gives a little bit of, of flesh, of meat to those first three verses. 
that actually we need to understand that we need to begin again at the beginning, that we receive everything from Christ through him and that we're called to be sanctified. We're called to be set apart for him. And I just love from verse 4 to 9, I just want to pray this over us if that's okay. It says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. With all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to reveal. There's a resurrection. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to read again those last two verses. Praise. Even when we're feeling faithless, we're on our worst day ever. This is truth. He will also keep you firm to the end. That is his promise. And some of you have had a tough week and you're thinking of bailing out. He will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless. What scandalous grace. Lord, we do not deserve this, but you will keep us blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Resurrection, we look to eternity. God is faithful. He's faithful. And he has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for listening to the Whole Vineyard Podcast. We would love to connect with you and welcome you home to church. To find out more, go to wholevineyard.co.uk forward slash connect. And stay up to date with all that is going on in the life of our church. Go to wholevineyard.co.uk forward slash church news and sign up for our weekly mailing. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.